Hi, I'm Gabby Logan, and this is the II Family Money Show. In each episode, I speak to a familiar face about the role money has played in their family life and professional success. This time, I'm joined by the former Army officer, Rugby World Cup winner, and now company chief executive, Josh Lucy. After two years combining his army and sporting careers, Josh resigned his commission to become a full-time rugby player, and he went on to win four premiership titles, two Heineken Cups and a European Challenge Cup with Wasps. Oh, and a World Cup with England. Since retiring from the game, he's moved into business, setting up his own consultancy company, leading big projects in the financial sector and becoming chief executive of a financial services firm in Hong Kong. In our interview, he tells me what it was like starting his rugby career just as the game was about to go professional, why he feels it's important not to dwell on the past and focus on your aims for the future instead, and why your investment strategy should line up with your own personal life goals. We talk to you today in Hong Kong. That's where you live, where you work, and um, where you found a, a life. We'll get all on to, to all that stuff and the current day in a moment. But let's take you right back to your childhood and your ambitions uh, and whether even playing rugby for a living was something you ever thought about because the sport wasn't professional when you were a kid. Um, well, I was going to say this is the first interview that I've done for a very long time. So when you said let's go back to your childhood, it sounds like some sort of therapy session. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, look, I mean, I grew up in a in a family of three brothers, and um, you know, a, a, as you know, with kids of your own, kind of uh, at that stage, kind of cheap, rugby is kind of a cheap form of babysitting, where you want to get low, <laughs> running around the field, and um, you know, rather than messing the house up and uh, smashing all the, the furniture to bits, get them outside, particularly when you're one of three boys. So, look, we grew up playing a lot of sport. It wasn't just rugby, but kind of just enjoyed being outside. We'd always, always lived kind of in the countryside, uh, so we're pretty active like that and we're encouraged to be like that. And, um, you know, and obviously uh, when, when you're one of three boys, you get lots of practice at kind of uh, uh, the physicality side and, and we played lots of sport at school as well. So yeah, I think we all sort of um, had a natural home really in, in sport, but then later in life, obviously, sort of specialised a bit more into rugby. And was the childhood, it sounds quite idyllic, running around, three brothers, having a great time. Um, was it Was it materially comfortable? Were you even aware of what your parents, kind of, you know, earnings or where you were in the kind of, you know, the strata? Did you think I'm a middle class child? Did I have comfortable things? Or were you completely oblivious to all of that? I think the answer is yes to that. I think that... Um Certainly, in younger years, you're a bit unaware, but as you grow up, become more and more aware of some people's money. Look, I think my mum, you know, she grew up in a, in a mining village in South Wales, and I was born in 1976. And it wasn't long after that you started having the impact of Thatcherism across the UK. So, you know, that created a real big divide in terms of ideologies around money, approach to things, etc. And, you know, as I said, we went down, we spent our summers down there, but it was very apparent there was big, lots of people unemployed. And also, you know, I remember in the, the early, my, my father worked for IBM and he was selling some mainframe computers. And that obviously went out with the birth of the internet and obviously personal computers. So I remember in the early 90s, he began being made redundant. And therefore it was a very, very uh, a big, big focus the family to be very prudent. I think we were always very prudent with the parents and 
that generation were very much focused, they were brought up in a post-war generation where they went through rationing. And you know, we've all become very, very sort of spoiled, really, in terms of the modern day age and some of the things we take for granted in, in many parts of society. But yes, very, very much was aware of that. And then lastly, I think as well, was we went to a grammar school. So we were always aware of the wealth that perhaps existed in private schools and what some people had. But I think that that gave you a really nice spectrum around going to school with, you know, as, as I was an all boys school, so son, sons of professionals and doctors and so on, but also at the other end of society, and my mum was a teacher as well, and she'd always taught in the state sector. So that spectrum of society, I think, was quite a healthy thing. But it also mm. then illustrated what you can achieve. But my God, you had to work at that. Um, so it was in many ways a very good grounding in terms of values and work ethic for setting goals for later life. And um, we'll get on to how those goals were achieved and manifested themselves. But it doesn't sound like, from what you've just said from your parents, that there was probably much spare change. They weren't talking about their investments or talking to you as a kid about their investment portfolio. Well, yes and no. I think of, um, my father was kind of probably a capitalist at heart in the fact that he was one of the few people. For, so he, I remember on Sundays when we used to have our own, where we'd earn our pocket money from, and I remember chopping logs. So the view was you weren't going to get pocket money unless you worked for it. So we had various chores. I remember going to collect logs from the woods, chopping the logs, stacking them up, bringing them inside. One of the other job was kind of some shining that shoes so you could go to work that week. And then the last point was also working through as they were back then in terms of the share prices in the newspaper to actually working through the old London Stock Exchange to work out what shares were worth that week. So from a very early on age, we were aware around this thing called business and didn't really understand what that was. But what that translated to was effectively you had one small share of this company. You had no idea at that age what they did. But that was your way of checking it. And we had to go through the mass of that every single Sunday. So I think it was a pretty good base and an understanding around there is something broader out there mm. than just school and, and running around a sports field, um, that, that something called investing in money. Yeah, that's that's quite a, a, a comprehensive education they've given you there compared to lots of people I speak to on this podcast and, and a real life experience as well, because obviously, you know, you working out how much your labour's worth when you're chopping your logs, aren't you? You know exactly <laughs> what you're supposed to be getting. Um, and theory, so... Yeah. Yeah, I think I mean, there's definitely child labour. There's no, no doubt. About that. <laughs> don't, I don't think we were on minimum minimum wage. This is the rights of parents. Um, I used to do ironing for a pound an hour and yeah. stupidly at the age of 10 decided that I'd be as quick as I could. If I could get 40 items out in that hour, that was amazing. What I didn't realise was, of course, I should be doing 10 items an hour and dragging out my, my labours. But um, my mum thought I was a, I was a genius because I was returning piles of ironing. Um, so going on to the, the kind of the sporting landscape and the talents that you're exhibiting, this is a period of time where, and I think actually when I look back now, you guys had a the best of it in the sense that you had a bit of amateurism and professionalism coming. So you had to work out what you wanted to do and be in life. You never thought that just being a rugby player was ever going to be it because you didn't really know how this was going to pan out. So you had all kinds of kind of plans going on in the background. You were sponsored by the army to go to Bristol University. So at that point, where was your mindset in terms of where rugby figured in the, in the scheme of things? 
Well, you're absolutely correct. I think um, you know, rugby pretty much turned professional when I was on the M4 on the way down to university. And um, you know, there were some people at the time, and you, you know some of those people in the early days of WASPs that kind of just said, well, okay, well, I'm not going to go to university. I'm just going to focus wholeheartedly on this. And you know, I remember people signing contracts then of kind of £15,000 for a year and thinking they were absolute millionaires and you felt, you felt you'd made it. So you're absolutely right. Prior to that point, I'd always thought, well, I'll try and play as good a level of rugby as I can, but it was never a job. Mm. Um, and even then when rugby went professional, I always saw it as a professional hobby that I'd have done for free anyway, because I loved it. Mm-hmm. And that what that then did was forge a new really discipline to make sure that whatever it was, whether it be the military, whether it be studies, I always worked full-time outside. And that's probably a bit of an anomaly, but certainly now I probably look back now and see that as probably a good characteristic. And ironically, I think the game of rugby, but also other professional sports have probably gone full circle now and realising actually it probably makes you a better player, more balanced individual. And Mm. in theory, makes your transition to later life a little bit better because it allows you to put sport in the perspective that it is and the folly that you, you can have some amazing days, but you also have some down days as well. And you know people through your job that have been through highs and lows. So I think being able to take that and, and see it for what it's worth and take the upside of it, but also make sure that you've got um, almost a, a bit more of a slower burn sort of career as well, I think probably makes mm. a lot of sense. And you're right. I mean, I was very fortunate. We played in an amazing group of people and people who with massively diverse backgrounds. When I went down to Bristol, I played at university, but I also played for Bristol Club and because I wasn't going to travel back and forth down the M4 to, to, to mm. Wasps. And I remember when the first game first went professional, there were teachers in that team, there were plasterers, you know, um, Kevin Maggs was a, you know, a curb layer for Bristol City Council and he ended up becoming 60 caps for Ireland. And I think that we were so lucky to have that group of individuals so I really do treasure that time. And I think that we played in almost the perfect time for, for the game. Yeah, you then got to experience after university. Um, well, actually, you went, then went off and did full-time army for a while, didn't you? Well, I did it both together, but um, right. I, I delayed So you were full-time rugby and full-time army. You were finishing at Sandhurst, were you? Yeah, yeah so exactly that. So we had two years back at Wasps. Um, I was then out of favour internationally. I thought, well, if I'm not going to do this at international level, then frankly, this is always going to be a secondary career to what I'd always planned to do in the first place, which was become an, an army officer and go off and do an operational tour. So did that, went through Sandhurst. That was quite a full-on year. So um, when when I hear some some of our youngsters say, kind of, uh, you know, I can't do that, I uh, can't fit that in, I haven't got enough time. I said, well, you can if you want to, and if you want to do something hard enough, you can find the time. So, mm. yeah, so there was lots to fit in. I don't, I'm don't. i not sure that people would be able to do that nowadays, but I certainly, we certainly did by hook or by crook then and, and had a lot of fun at the same time as well. So when you eventually, um, after your education and your um, army experience, became a full-time rugby player, you did experience full-time professionalism, you must have felt like you had all the time in the world, Josh, finishing training at lunchtime every day. Well, it's interesting. I, I mean, I played full-time when I was at Bristol, but also you you only play 80 minutes a week. So what do you do with the rest of the time? You can either kind of play PlayStation with your downtime, you train only you really a couple of hours a day. really for, So you have lots of downtime. So you can utilise that in a far more productive way or just kind of 
um, use it as uh, in another way. And for me, I was was always working away. So I did my degree, and through the military, you did that as well. And we can actually marriage that marriage the two. Unfortunately, I had to resign my commission because it became apparent that after two years, you know, we were we, the, the army was gearing up to go off to Iraq for the second time. And I brought back into the international fold. So I was trying to marry that. And reality was that each summer you'd go on operational tour to New Zealand or South Africa or Australia, but you couldn't do that both together. So when I then said, actually, I'm just going to focus on this, and this was 12 months before the World Cup, when I resigned the commission, which is still probably one of the hardest decisions ever made, you then said, okay, well, I don't, I won't put all my eggs in one basket. At least I will go back and continue with my studies make sure you've got a job outside that. So I always work mm. full-time outside that and maintain that along. So to your point around extra time, that was correct, but I made sure that I, I made sure that I was doing other things to keep continue other career at the same time in, in that downtime when you weren't playing or training. And as you say, that was a year before the World Cup. At the beginning of that year, you made your England home debut in the Six Nations. And perfect timing, Josh, <laughs> with a World Cup coming later that year. So all the kind of stars were aligning. Things were falling into place for you, weren't they, uh, at that point? I wonder how much all of that experience outside of rugby when you look back, actually gave you whatever it was extra you needed to get yourself back into the England fold and to be in the right place at the right time, how much it contributed to you as a person and how you approached your rugby? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I think that certainly, I think we all go through tough times, right? I and mean, you all go through things where you question yourself and my face didn't seem to fit for, for a while. And then you get some advice and you go, well, actually, you end up learning lessons through that. You learn lessons usually in more in adversity in life than when, think when the going is good. And for me, it just took some lessons around that you could only worry about what you can actually control. And secondly was, if you're good enough for long enough, and when you get your chance, that's when you take it. So, um, yeah, I think there are lessons for life in that in many sort of mm. careers and jobs. And you've just got to keep grafting away. And you get when you get that chance, you've got to make sure through merit you deliver. But it's really around being long-term greedy, setting longer-term aims, and I think resilience. And I think that it's quite interesting if you look at, if you study a lot of CEOs now and people who have achieved in many different industries, I think there's probably two characteristics that I see as a common amongst a lot of great CEOs. And some of the great CEOs, by the way, aren't necessarily the names that you sometimes always associate being the big names. I'm talking about level five CEOs with level five leadership. And there's two elements that come across with those people. One is resilience and the other one's humility. So great lessons for life that obviously transpired through a sports field and you know the sacrifices you make to eventually, fortunately, get to the World Cup and get picked and all that sort of stuff. But it wasn't without having to work really hard to get there. Of course, that was probably yeah. the same for a lot of people around that. But mm. also those lessons that you up for for lessons later on in life. Indeed they do. And the army, I imagine as well, um, is something where you not only learn great leadership, you see a lot of great leadership. You probably see leadership that you question as well, but you can't be part of a team like that. You know, that team that won the World Cup in 2003 without a good crop of leaders. And it's always said, isn't it, that there are more, there's more than just the captain on the pitch. There have to be people all over the pitch in, in any team sport who know how to lead. Is that something when you look at that team now that, 
that you, with all your interests and years now working in business, you look and think actually there were some really big leaders there. Yes, um, but I think that necessarily doesn't do the nuance justice. I think if you look at what makes a successful organisation, everyone looks at leadership and it's the most popular thing. People use things like culture, but it isn't the only thing. There's also some fundamental basic building blocks that need to be there in the first place. So you need to have the right strategy. Um, you need to, you know, people need to operate effectively together. They need to be structured in the, in the right way. So, I mean, look, going back to that time, people talked through, I don't think we'd have won the World Cup. I mean, people 20 years on, it's very easy to sort of nitpick certain things. I don't, I think it was a combination of, look, Clive was a, a bit of a visionary in a lot of the stuff that he did. And I think, I think he set the, ambition and the platform for a lot of and brought in some great coaches with great innovation but also sort of aided with that was a group of players that came together at the same time so mm. you know and you know sometimes it takes a not necessarily the most polished group of individuals but sometimes some waifs and strays to come together as a kind of rag and crew and then when you've got some amazing leaders and you've got a clear direction and you have time to build that. And people always forget that the success doesn't happen overnight. That team failed in 1999. Clive was given another chance to coach on. And that the, the genesis of that performance was probably a world record defeat to the hands of uh, Australia in 1998. And I was actually on that tour. Johnny's one of Johnny's first games and Johnny became like the greatest kind of hero of, English folklore, but that day, as long as everyone else, then you know, we, we, we had, there, were, there weren't as many great performances. So it was really a case of this is as, as, as tough as it gets. So where do we set the ambition and go again? So it was a long time coming. It was a journey. And I think there's lots of lessons around leadership, around grit and determination. And there's some luck along the way as well. And the army, going back to, to what you learned about leadership there, it's quite formalised, isn't it, leadership in, in that sense, because you're working your way through ranks and, and your job is to lead, whereas there's more, as you say, more nuanced leadership skills, softer skills that are needed when you're in a team and you're not the captain, for example, or you might not even be a unit leader within that team. So what did you notice from what you were learning in the army and how, how that kind of leadership pattern was different in rugby or were there similarities that you kind of recognised from what you've been taught? Good question. I think you understand the military, you study leadership in all different formats. You understand the importance of organisational structure. So very quickly, you are the clarity of roles and responsibilities is determined very quickly. In a business environment or a sports environment, sometimes that takes a while to forge. So people talk about storming, norming, forming phases and, you know, when people use a phrase in the sports context around, oh, I knew my role, well, mm. it takes a while to get that. You can't put a new team together and everyone knows that. So mm -hmm. it, that is a sort of coming together of many factors. Two other elements are really important. One is the, is the importance of fellowship and understanding the, the contribution of fellowship to a team structure. Um, and that is a form of leadership itself. And why personal viewpoint as I don't think you can truly understand leadership. You can become a great leader, by the way, but you don't necessarily understand leadership unless you know followership as well. And that doesn't apply to everyone. And then mm. lastly is is kind of the 
the structure of how you communicate. So in the military, you learn very formal ways of communicating, disseminating direction or strategy around the why, the what, and the means. And, and, and it is a format off the back of mission command to actually devolve responsibility and therefore bottom-up accountability because you basically you're telling people you know, the boundaries in which they, the aim of what they're trying to achieve, the boundaries what they need to operate in, the means of which they have to get that job done. But how they decide to do that is devolved right the way to the bottom unit of the army or, or the military in order that people at the bottom, because they will be better placed to make that decision than someone very much at the top. So the how mm. is determined from those people. And in that, you're encouraging bottom-up leadership and bottom-up accountability. And that's something that, certainly I've tried to adopt and try to encourage in a business context, but it's not always something people want to take on board. And mm. and that therefore requires an element of organisational structure to do that. So, I mean, that's probably a long-winded way of saying there's some actual key learnings around the structure and approach that are very much underestimated unless you've actually been through that formal training or, or, or actually studied this stuff, I think. It's very interesting, though, I think, and how you then translate that into your business career and what you take from both of those careers, sport and and the army. And um, I wonder if we talk a little bit about risk, if you both involve a lot of risk as well, don't they? You know, joining joining the army is extraordinarily risky for somebody, isn't it, potentially, because it's life threatening. You know, you could be sent into into action and, and the ultimate end game there is for somebody else to want to take your life. Playing rugby involves risks, not just on the field, but also your career can be cut short at any moment. When you decided to go for it in the rugby sense and you um, gave up your, your army career, how much did you weigh up risk there? I don't think it was, risk was not really a thing. It was a case of where can you contribute most and where could you have the biggest impact and a sense of duty or purpose. And so I think that that is an overriding factor than, than risk. And when you're in your young 20s, you kind of quite happily jump into some of those things when you don't necessarily have the responsibility of children. Mm. Um, and I think you're probably a bit more gung-ho. And also, on a, on a lighter note, I did sort of sit down with my best mates from the military at the time, from the army at the time. And I said, listen, lads, kind of, I've been told, and, and this wasn't by the, the by the coaches, but you know, a couple of the older players had sat me down and said, look, you you're 12 months away, you've got a good chance of doing well, but kind of you can't do both. And it was obvious to me that I either wanted to do the job properly and become go off and do operational tours, or and a proper officer or not at all, because otherwise that just, for me, that was kind of wrong. So it was um, never a risk really for you? Well, I think that, yeah, that, that I wanted to do, I wanted to, if I was going to do it, I was going to do it properly. And, you know, my best friend got shot in Iraq. And so that really much brought that home around that time. But to answer your question, a kind of couple of lads, you sat down and said, lads, what would, what would you do? And am I making the right decision? And they sat down and said, well, listen, I'd give my right arm to play rugby for England. And if you don't, I'll cut yours off. So, you know, don't, don't know what... <laughs> Gallows <laughs> well, humour. Yeah, exactly. One of the other guys just said, Look, as long as I get some freebie kit, then I don't care. So, <laughs> get um, the stash. Ironically, then you play all that through and then 12 months later or whatever it was, mm. through the highs and the lows and the ups and downs and the journey you've been on, you know, when we finally lifted the, the trophy, like the first call I made was to a couple of the guys who were actually in a live firefight over in the rock. They shouldn't have had their mobile phones on 
But I told them that was the first call I made and said, like, we did it. And uh, it was a pretty emotional time for a lot of people. Yeah, I imagine. And, and going on from that, I think most fans of sport, let alone fans of that England rugby team, can can imagine the joy. And uh, funny enough, I was doing the athletics this weekend and um, a long jumper called Jasmine Sawyers won the gold in the European indoors and jumped seven metres for the first time. And watching on in our studio was Jake Whiteman, who's the world 1500 metre champion. And he said, oh, I'm just jealous of the, the evening she's going to have. <laughs> and, and I think that that kind of relief, that sense of relief and that sense of joy that, that comes through through winning is something that sports people find sometimes quite hard yeah. to explain to the, to the lay sports fan yeah, yeah. Um, because it is it is accumulation, isn't it, of all the effort, all the effort. And then when you get into civilian life away from sport, it does probably make it harder to find the joy in other things yeah. that you do. I remember listening to Kenny and Brian Moore having a conversation once um, with a very successful businessman saying to him, no, any deal you close won't feel the same as lifting a Six Nations trophy or lifting, you know. Have you found that in business? Have you been able to tap into the joy when you no, when you do, a, you know, a very successful deal or there's an investment that comes off? No, I think you've got to take your, take your victories where you can. Yeah, and I remember commenting on this a few years back. I think it's important to say that one, kind of that was probably 20 years ago, so stop talking about the past and move on. And <laughs> one of the, yeah, this is the first interview I've done in quite a few years because I think it's really important not to dwell in the past. And because I think if you dwell your identity just to somehow something happened 20 years ago, mm. then you're always living in the past and you're always set. So I think you've got to look forward and try and take, you know, enjoyment in other areas. and, and yeah, reinvent yourself is the wrong thing because ultimately you're the same person. It's around building on the characteristics you already have. But I think for a mindset, I mean, you've, you've, there's been a lot of, it's really sad to see some of the people have really struggled through depression and mental health and mm -hmm. you know, some of the, the factors you see around the headlines with some of the guys recently. And I really, I want to just give a big hug to some of those guys and kind of, some of those things are really sad. But also I think you've got to have a positive mentality to, not associate your whole identity with something that happened in the past. So mm -hmm. for me, it was very much about draw a line. Yes, save that moment. Yes, we're very lucky to have that moment. And you know, this year we'll have, uh, I'm told, a, a 20 year reunion. And I never get to talk about this stuff. I don't even have a television. I don't actually often watch the game. So actually, sharing in that those times are quite funny. But um, I think it's also important to see it in the department of life that it was. It was one chapter, it was an amazing chapter, but also you've got the rest of your life ahead of you. So I think you've got to look forward to other things and find contentment and happiness in, in, in other walks of life as well. And so was it always going to be business for you? Was there ever a point where you wanted to stay around? I know you had your job at the Welsh Rugby Union when you were head of, head of rugby there. Um, was there ever a point where you thought that a life in rugby would make you happy? I think that, you know, good question. I think there was, I think I still probably, if I'd have known sort of how things had gone, I would have probably retired earlier than I did. And I was pretty early when I retired because I think that I felt as though I had unfinished business in the military. I, I felt as though perhaps I should have retired earlier and gone back into, I'd like to have done a couple of operational tours. I played for my country, but I didn't sort of serve or fight for my country. So that was kind of unfinished business. But again, it's just because of, you can't do everything and you know age catches up with you doesn't it so that was that was probably one element as for uh career wise in terms of uh job 
I was always fascinated around markets, capital markets and investing. So for me, I was always passionate about that, but also improving companies. And so for me, going to PwC and then at Citibank was an element between one, one side improving companies and the other one was, what is it around you need to invest in a company? What is, a, what is one company in terms of relative value or relatively expensive versus another? And for me, that fulcrum was kind of key. Now, when I left banking for a while, because I sought for a bit of a purpose, and that was perhaps the moment for me where, you know, being blunt, I was probably missing that um, sense of purpose that I'd had more mm-hmm. in sport. And it was also my way of kind of going back and being able to contribute and do something that mattered. But having done that and kind of done some really nice stuff, which really, really proud of at some of the more junior level uh, of the game in Wales, I felt as though um, actually I missed some of the more dynamism that happens in in capital markets and investing markets. So that was the opportunity to get back into the business world. And that's kind of a continuation of that with what I'm doing there. It's a dynamic market. It's been really interesting. Uh, I think in 20 years time, we'll look back and go, wow, that was an amazing chapter of your life living through COVID here. Mm -hmm. Also seeing some of the unraveling of the geopolitical elements between the US and China is really interesting. And particularly being based here, and the version of the press is a little bit different than you get in London, and certainly different from the way you get in the US. So yeah, playing that all that through becomes it becomes a really dynamic, interesting market, and um, it's just great that it's opening up again as well. Can you see yourself staying there forever? Oh, I don't know. I don't know yet. I think that you kind of see yourself in five-year chapters, mm-hmm. and I think there was a moment sort of during COVID where you think actually. Is this the right, the right place to be? And I think a lot of people did move away, particularly with the impact on families. But look, there's, a, there's an opportunity here over the next few years, I think. Um, and you're always aware when you're the third region that there is a bigger world out there. So there's an international mindset um, and there's, a, there's usually a can-do spirit in a lot of people who are based here. And, you know, we have an APAC role, so it means travelling down to Australia or... New Zealand and into into and out of ASEAN. And yeah, there's 4.3 billion people in Asia. So it's not a small market. It's a very heterogeneous, very mixed market, but it means for really interesting conversations and particularly back to the theme of this talk around investing and saying, well, actually, how do you invest? And we've had, you know, 15 years of a relatively benign investing environment to all of a sudden high cost of capital recently, a deglobalization theme growing tensions between China and the US and where do you thread that needle in terms of where you allocate capital now? We obviously support companies do that, uh, but it becomes a fascinating cerebral exercise as well as a practical one on the ground. Let's talk about your own personal investing strategy. You talked about life being there in kind of five-year plans or five-year projects. Are your investments for the longer or medium term Look, I think that um, your investing strategy needs to mirror your life goals and what suits you. And I think there's some great, you know, there's some fantastic reading. So as you know, I can read a lot on uh, investing strategies, lifestyle kind of approaches. And there's great books like The, the Psychology of Money and sort of life, life lessons around um, sort of money, happiness, greed, all that sort of stuff. So making sure you get around what success is, what performance mm-hmm. is, What's the return you need? What, how you measure up risk as part of that to actually what suits you is kind of a key thing that 
many people I don't think do. And when you, again, when you go back to in your younger years, you don't really plan for this stuff. But um, as you start to, you know, you're comfortably into 40s now and you go, well, actually you've got to start thinking through this for longer term. So that's a long-winded way of saying kind of both. <laughs> but maybe it's changed slightly, has it? As you as you got older then in the last few years, am I getting that you've started to think a little bit more long-term? No, I've always, so I've read, all, I mean, so everyone talks about being prudent and long-term investing. I think you generally you're, your approach should be long-term investing, but it's around what's right for you at that time and can you take risk? And if you are yeah, a solvent individual with a relatively good job, you can take higher risk, you can take leverage, you can, so learning what you can tolerate and you're willing mm. to effectively lose is a really important part. So, but yeah, all your listeners, I'm sure, will be very familiar with the importance of compounding, longer-term focus, et cetera. But I think that there are big, well, you know, this is this is kind of what we do is that there are two big thematics in the market, which I'm very passionate about. One is the investing industry needs to add more alpha. So it needs to more, add more value for the fees that it charges. And because of that, I think you're going to see this bifurcation between sort of passive investing in the one end and through what I call actual investing, not active, but actual investing in the other, where you get involved in the companies. You improve mm. them, you drive that operational alpha, you improve the governance, both on the financial side and the sustainability side. And that's what gives you a kick, is it? The act of investing for you. Yeah, very much exactly. And that's effectively what, you know, when we work support private equity firms, there's a lot, they've had a lot of sort of criticism of many years around leverage and where they break down performance. Okay, where's your actual performance come from? Does it come through, you know, market beta so the, the multiples going up is it around your leverage on, on the thing or is it around operational your EBITDA uh, very, this is very very simplistic so understanding where that comes from and that doesn't really matter when the, when the market's been going up at 20% a year for the last 15 years but we've now entered a period of time where you know the, the, the famous phrase by Warren Buffett you only know who's who's been swimming naked when the tide goes out. So I think we're now into a really interesting time where if you haven't got that kind of operational focus and you haven't got that focus on alpha, then I think some of those investors are going to become more and more challenged. And that's increasingly where I think then normal people need to be aware of these things so actually know where to place their money and be a bit more mindful. And, and the people who are investing on these people's behalf then need to demonstrate their value add in, in, far more, in a far more tangible manner. Just um, for our listeners there um, who may be listening uh, without vision, um, Josh is in an office in his building in Hong Kong and there was a fantastic horn blowing uh, incident in the background there, which um, just gave me a bit of a, a real life Hong Kong rush hour type scenario yeah, going exactly. on. Because I'm, I'm speaking to you in the Buckinghamshire countryside um, and I can, I can, I think I can see a cow in the distance, but definitely uh, that horn was at your end. Yeah. <laughs> um, not mine. Um, yeah, it's given me a, a kind of, I kind of want to wander outside your building now and uh, taking the sights and sounds. I haven't been to Hong Kong since the year of the handover, actually. So a very, very long time. Uh, so away from the lifestyle, if you like, in Hong Kong, you, you mentioned there you're, you know, you've, you went over there, you swim at the weekends or in the mornings, whatever, before uh, before work. You know, there's, I'm sure there's plenty of great stuff. You can fly quite quickly, can't you, to interesting places as well in that part of the world. Josh, you've got a couple of children and uh, a lot of people, when they're making their investments and they're planning their financial futures, obviously are, 
are wondering how those will affect, you know, their kids and how to make those uh, investments work best for their children. Is that something that you've you've adopted and, and changed your strategy of investments because of over the last few years? I haven't changed anything as a result of that. I think that um, one thing, as I said, we, we work a, a lot with life insurance firms and you can't help but be aware that you know, the vast majority of people probably don't invest enough for the longer term. And particularly for a rainy day or if something sad happens. And we all know as you get older in life, you know, sad things happen just in, in very, very unexpectedly. So, yeah, the life insurance industry is, is really huge here in Hong Kong. So no specific kind of policies with that in mind. But what it does do is to say, like, kind of, why do we work? You know, what, what, what is success? What do you need in terms of your financial kind of comfort level? Because um, that really sets the bar in terms of how you shape your life and the lifestyle and some mm. of the decisions you make. And I think that people, you know, I think that, again, I could sort of reference some, some great books around um, this sort of stuff, around saying, well, what's enough for you and what's kind of your, your happy level? And everyone has different views on what that is. You know, if you want to be a, a billionaire, well, good luck to you, but kind of you spend probably a lot of your life relatively you know, unhappy and satisfied. I think it's really important then to get your sort of happiness out of simpler joys in life. And mm -hmm. so I think that it's all part of that kind of factoring what matters to you, what you want by when, and having a broad plan to that and knowing full well that plan will probably, you know, get moved at some stage. But as long as you're kind of prudent and solvent to that, to that regard, then that, that kind of makes sense. But also, you know, I think that, um, as I said, you we all know people where have suddenly got ill or have lost family members and you don't want to ever say, oh, I wish we did this or we wish we did that. So I think being prudent and saving is great on one side, but you've got to live life as well. So mm. I think it's really a case of balance and um, making sure that as part of a broader plan, lifestyle plan, your financial investing plan supports that. Josh, you're, you speak a lot of sense. I'm sure that um, that wisdom will be appreciated by our listeners. So uh, thank you so much for all your time today. And um, it's good to catch up. Hopefully you will be across to celebrate the 20th anniversary later this year of the, of the Rugby World Cup win. I might uh, bump into you somewhere. It feels like just yesterday that you guys were walking around that pitch in Sydney. I don't know about you, but um, time flies. It feels <laughs> Thanks for listening to the II Family Money Show. If you've got time, please give us a follow in your podcast app and leave us a review or rating. You can find loads of ideas on how to plan for you and your family's financial future at ii.co.uk. See you next time.